This is the Shit You Need to Know podcast. I'm your host, Martha Riley. I'm a TEDx speaker, cheese pizza lover, and master human connector. I help introverts, people with social anxiety, and awkward humans of the world find confidence, connection, and their cool factor. Because have you ever been to a party and someone asked you a question that you didn't know the answer to? Yeah, me too. It fucking sucks. But that's where I come in. I'm asking the questions so you'll have the answers. So sit back, relax, because there's shit we need to know. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Shit You Need to Know podcast. I am recording this after the episode of Game of Thrones that premiered on Sunday. And to be honest, I'm in like a bit of a numb state. I didn't like it and I am super disappointed by the season as a whole. I know that's a super hot take. But I have, like, dedicated my life to this for the last seven years. I know it sounds, like, really sad, but I've read all the books, I've watched the show, I re-listened to all the podcasts, I read all the articles. Like, I am a Game of Thrones super fan. And I know I'm not even, like, the only one. I know there are people who far surpass me in the fandom, and that's super awesome. But for someone who, like, invested as much as their time in the show as I did... I'm disappointed, and that's all I'm going to say. But that is also my question this week. Do you watch Game of Thrones? A lot of my friends actually don't, which I think is super funny, because at this point, it's like a cultural touchstone. Like, everyone has seen Game of Thrones, except for my friends. There's also, like, a bunch of stuff going around Twitter where it's like, oh, I haven't seen Game of Thrones, and people are like, no one fucking cares, you're not special. As usual, the poll will be on Instagram on Wednesday, uh, and you can answer it over there. We'll see what happens. Another cool thing I'm doing on Wednesday, and I'm starting this week, I am going to do a, like a live broadcast on Instagram that Wednesday night. So 8.45 to 9 p.m. Central Time. And we're just going to chat about the episode. So come if you have listened. Come if you haven't, because I will be answering questions about the episode, really about, you know, anything you want, I guess, but mainly on the episode and I'll answer. And if I don't have the answers for you, um, I will make sure to reach out to our guest and get answers from him. So that is a great segue into our guest, I guess. <laughs> our guest this week is Ian. Um, he is a certified financial planner and financial coach. Ian was a delight to talk to. I really, you know, build this episode to him as like a personal finance episode, but it kind of turned into an adulting 101 episode. So what do you need to know about life insurance? What do you need to know about health insurance? We talk about it all. But uh, one big thing that we talk about is debt and debt management. So if you 
maybe know me a little bit, you'll know that debt has been like a really big part of my life lately. Because frankly, it just got to a point where I said, fuck it. And I don't know what to do. And I need some help. So I got to, you know, I I talked to some friends, I made some really great connections in the community that I live in, to help me out with my problem. And my problem is, I have a not so small amount of credit card debt. Uh, to be honest, I'm pretty ashamed by it. Um, there's not a day that goes by where I don't think about my debt. It's something that like hangs over me. And it was a really, it's just like a not fun situation to be in. But how I got there, it wasn't always like this. There was a time in my life where I was debt free, but as people in debt know, it's pretty easy for it to snowball. You open one credit card, you open another one, you open another one while well, your credit is still good. And then it turns to shit. But that's a story for another time. And like, logically, I know that credit cards aren't money that you have. Like my brain knows that. But like the other part of my brain was like, no, 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 like it's money you have, you can just spend it paid off later. It doesn't matter. Interest is a th- not a thing. And it went on like that for quite some time. I would spend money on personal training, personal development, um, like a fucking new mattress. I don't know, like shit that I thought I needed that I probably definitely didn't need. And it just got out of control, really. Like that's the best way to phrase it. Do I regret some of the purchases that I made? Oh yeah, absolutely. There is, I'm looking around my room. There's some shit I didn't need here, but I thought it made me happy at the time. Doesn't now. But then there are things that really I don't regret. And those are some of the personal development things. So if I would have never gone to Tony Robbins in December, this podcast would never have been born. So I'm super thankful for that. Um, I'm super thankful for like the chance to do a lot of things. Um, but now I'm really just trying to rein it in and figure it out because I never really talked about money growing up with my parents. It was something that was very much like swept under the rug. Um, any questions that I had weren't really answered. I know I got an allowance of like $20 a week and that was like my concept of money. Like, oh, money just comes freely. I don't really have to work for it. False. That is so wrong now, but that's okay. I don't blame my parents. I blame myself for not getting the information ahead of time. So if, if you're a parent listening to this, uh, definitely talk to your kids about finance. That is something you should be doing. And that is why I have this episode so I can talk to other people about finance and debt and how to be an adult because those are things we don't necessarily learn. Um, and my whole thing is, learn things, be educated. And if you don't have the information, seek it out. So I hope you find this episode really enjoyable. I know I did. It is jam packed with information and information that, you know, will help you through these adulting phases of life. So enough about me, enough about my debt sob story. Take it away, Ian. I'm Ian and I am two things, a financial planner and a financial coach. I have two businesses and I run them separately. Um, So first I started in financial planning and to give your listeners a better idea of the difference between the two, financial planners are kind of, um, I would say consultants in that they provide 
clients with the strategy work for um, how to manage your investments, how to, um, or like what types of insurance you need. And a lot of them sell insurance products or other financial products such as annuities. And so I like to think of them as like a a strategy consultant for your financial life. And then financial coaching, on the other hand, is a lot more of the behavioral and goal setting and uh, money mindset work. I started that business a couple of years ago because one of the things that I realized doing financial planning was that oftentimes we get stuck in the, the mindset that like what we need to be happy with our money is like more strategy, more uh, investment acumen, like some brilliant plan that Warren Buffett is keeping secret from us or, you know, (laughs) but what I found working with like a diverse group of clients was that, you know, more money doesn't make you happier. You know, I have clients who have $10 million and still stress out about their money on a daily basis or, you know, have a hard time using their monies and their money in ways that make them happy. So for me, what financial coaching is, is really helping people tap into what are the financial resources that are available to me? And then how can I align that with my personal values and goals to use that in a way that really makes my life enjoyable and fulfilled? Yeah, for sure. I think that's funny that you mention it because I recently got like a pay increase, a pretty substantial one too, but I would say I'm having more difficulties trying to figure out how to manage it and like be happy with more money than I did when I was making less money because I feel like, I don't know, there was like a mindset change that when I made more money, I could spend more and that was okay when in reality I shouldn't have done that. Um, but yeah, it's it's weird that you say that because I'm definitely sort of experiencing that now. I was probably happier when I made less money. There's this weird like, um, there's, so there's a lot of studies out there that look at correlations between money and quote happiness. And how happiness is kind of a hard metric to measure. But um, uh, what a lot of these studies found is that You know, after I think they said a household income of $70,000 a year, uh, household being, I think they, a lot of the studies averaged three people. um, There was no correlation between having more money and like reporting a happier life, which is super interesting to me because it really, I think we get kind of caught in this mindset look because we're peppered with, you know, glamorous ads on TV and social media influencers who are taking pictures in these super exotic locales. And we think like, man, once I have all this money, I'm going to live this such a happy life because I'm going to be doing all these things. And, you know, that's what's really cool to me working with clients in a financial coaching capacity is it's like, you know, you, you already have the resources available to you to live a happy life. It's just dialing into how money plays a part in that equation. Okay. So the majority of my listeners are millennials and people in that 23 to 30 age range. What do you think is the most important thing to focus on when you're in that age range? Learning about your finances and graduating college and getting your first time salary. 
It's kind of an unsexy answer. Um, I think a lot of people want like this, again, this like brilliant strategy or like something like, oh, I never thought of that. <laughs> but really 90% of where you end up financially comes down to cash flow. A lot of whether or not you're fulfilled with how you're using your money comes down to your cash flow. And I think as a whole, we just tend to assume that how we're spending our money is just how we spend our money. And then, you know, as we advance in our careers, um, generally we start making more money and we stay on that habit of, okay, I'm making more money now. I'm just going to continue spending more as per usual without taking like a hard look at, you know, what are my goals for my money? What do I really want to do in, during my lifetime? And so we kind of spend our lives in this default state. And so what I would say to people who are like in the process of getting started is just start focusing on how you're spending your money. Like don't overcomplicate it. Just start looking at on a monthly basis, go in and, you know, download a, a budgeting tool. I love Mint or another good one is you need a budget and just look at how your spending shakes out on a month to month basis. And I guarantee you, it will surprise you in some area. Yeah, so cut down the eating out budget and put that towards savings. Uh, that's what I need to do. That's that's my situation. <laughs> <laughs> I had a really interesting uh, client call yesterday. And I think, you know, eating out, you know, there's nothing wrong with eating out. I think it's just eating out when it's something that's bringing value to your life. But one of the biggest budget killers is like the eating out for convenience sake. And I think it's like, you know, it's like, do I get a lot more out of eating lunch out every day at work or for that same amount of money that I could save if I made, you know, made food at home, I could go to a cheap trip to Guatemala for a week. Um, so it's really all about like figuring out, you know, that's going to bring you more fulfillment. So it's, it's really just about doing like taking, like getting that clarity on how you're spending your money and is there better ways to be spending it that will make you happier in life. So how do you feel about investing? Is it better to invest early or if you don't invest now, is it better to start rather than wait till a certain point in time to start investing? So what I would say is that there's definitely a benefit to starting early. Um, and even if it's a small amount, building that habit of investing early can be huge over the long term. The best place I would recommend everyone starts is looking at whatever um, retirement account is sponsored by their employer. If their employer doesn't sponsor a retirement account, opening up like a, a, an IRA, for example, or a Roth IRA. Oftentimes, employers will have what's called matching contributions in the retirement account, which means that they will add to your retirement account the same amount that you are adding up to a certain amount. Um, a common one is 100% match up to 3% of your salary, or another one is a 50% match up to 6%. So if you put 6% into your 401k, your 401k, they'll add an additional 3%. 
And what's great about that is that's free untaxed money into your savings. And so if you're not saving that amount, you're leaving free money on the table. Rarely is there things that are free in life (laughs) that are worth it. And this is one of those things. So I would say if you're not, um, you're not meeting that match, look at your budget and figure out if that's feasible for you because that's free money and it compounds over time. This is the second part I would say about investing early is that somebody who invests a smaller amount but starts earlier and does it consistently will generally add or have a better outcome than somebody who sporadically adds but waits later in life. And even if they are contributing larger amounts later in life, they haven't had that time to realize that compound growth earlier on um, that the investment returns. And so they'll end up with, you know, less money sometimes um, or be scrambling close to retirement to make up for all of those lost years. What is life insurance and what is it for? That's something I'm super unfamiliar with. So I'm interested to see how it works and why I would need it. This is kind of like, I'm going to stand on my soapbox, but only for a minute on this. As a financial planner, I get a lot of clients in the door who have life insurance that was not needed, I would say, um, or types of life insurance that for their particular situation were really inappropriate for that specific client. And the reason for this is that the term financial planner is not a regulated term. So there's a lot of quote, planners out there that are really insurance salesmen with quotas. And so they'll have to sell, for example, 30 universal life policies a month. And if they don't meet that quota, they're going to get yelled at by their boss. So they sometimes make unethical decisions. So what I would say is it's really important to be clear on why you need life insurance before buying and being clear on what the difference is between the types of policies. And so why we use life insurance is because we want to cover the risk that your untimely demise poses on the people who depend on you financially, right? So say you're married and you have kids and a mortgage. If you were to get hit by a bus or a snowplow, in the case of Minnesota, walking out the door, your spouse and kids are now going to be in a really tough situation, right? Because they were depending on you for that income. So what life insurance is used for is covering things like the mortgage or the cost of raising kids, or if you're the primary breadwinner, making up for the lost retirement savings that you would have added and that your spouse might depend on. So that's really why you need life insurance. In addition, like you could, oftentimes I recommend people have like a smaller amount to cover funeral costs so that your family isn't stuck with the bill at the end of the day (laughs) because they're already, you know, sad because you're no longer with them. Add to that a $5,000, $10,000 funeral bill and it's just even worse situation. (laughs) So inconvenient for dying. How dare you? (laughs) Death is kind of an inconvenience. (laughs) What is the best way to negotiate for yourself and stand in your worth? Because I know as a female, it can be a little bit more uncomfortable to like negotiate your salary, step up, like stand up to the big boss. Like what's a 
what's a good way to do that and what's a mindset to have around that? First, to put this out there, corporate America is not on your side. And there's a lot of tactics that they use that just get me so like kind of fired up and angry. There, for instance, the most common one that I see all the time, and there was actually a, a study that I read that was done, and women reported hearing this negotiations three times more than men did. And this argument is that, you know, we really only have enough money this year to give everyone a, say, a 2% raise. Now, you're free to negotiate more than that, but that means that we won't be able to pay everyone else more. And so you're stuck sitting there thinking, well, shit, if I go after what I need and I want and what I think is fair to me, then I'm going to screw Sharon down the hall out of a raise and her kids aren't going to be able to go to soccer practice anymore. And what I would say is, you know, it's not your job to make sure that everyone gets fair raises in the office. That's their job. If them not doing, if, you know, if the execs not doing their job correctly means that their bottom line is tighter and that they don't feel that it's worthy that your department gets, you know, a slice of the pie that would give everyone raises that they might deserve. That's not your problem. So stepping back and saying, you know, I'm not being greedy by negotiating for a higher raise. I'm just like needing to look out for myself because the other option is that you, you don't negotiate. You get stuck with the 2% raise or whatever that you don't feel is fair. And then you become resentful at your job and it becomes kind of more work and you're not feeling, you know, adequately compensated. So what I would say is give yourself like a pep talk going in and just be very clear with yourself that advocating for yourself isn't greedy. It's just not, it's what you need to do. And if advocating for yourself gets you a better raise, then that's going to put you in a place to be more effective in your job. You know, if you feel that you're being adequately compensated for the work and the value that that you provide your company, then you're just going to be more effective in that position. So go in with that mentality rather than the mentality of, I want to make sure that everybody comes out of this in the same boat that I am. As far as like what to do to prep in into like going into those negotiations, I would say do your homework. Look at, you know, what other people are compensated in the role. Create a case for what values you added to the company that year. What initiatives did you take? You know, why is it that you deserve a raise? And make it compelling so that, you know, you believe it. You know, one of the, the biggest differences in pay discrepancies for people in the, same, in the same job is whether or not they negotiated. Yeah, that seems, uh, that seems really unfair, but yeah, I get it. Yeah, I get I, one of like one of the money myths that I see propagated a lot is is like if you work hard and are a good person, you'll make a lot of money, and that's part of it. Like, be a nice person, work hard, and add value there. But the other part of that that's missing from that belief is advocating for yourself too, and that can be really difficult to overcome. I know that 
you know, I struggled with that, especially being, you know, Minnesota nice. I think we definitely um, preach values of like humbleness and, you know, appreciating what you get and <laughs> can really hold you back. All right. What are the difference between Roth and pre-tax contributions? I mean, I, my dad always told me to do one or the other, uh, but I never really actually looked into what they were. So any advice would be appreciated. <laughs> On the individual retirement, and there's, you probably heard of IRAs or individual retirement accounts or Roth IRAs. The difference is whether the money that you're contributing goes in before tax dollars are taken out or after tax dollars are taken out. The benefit to contributing to a, an IRA or on the, the employer side, a 401k, is that that money is going in before taxes are taken out, meaning that your tax bill is going to shrink because the pay that the IRS looks at when they assess taxes is going to be smaller meaning that you're able to contribute a little bit more based on what your you can contribute like what your budget allows for you to contribute than you would if that was just going in after the taxes were taken out when you put that those dollars in um, after tax is with the case with a Roth account or a taxable investment account there's something called tax drag and what that means is basically that say you have $100 you're going to save into an, a, an investment account. Maybe if you did the, the, the IRA, you could put that full $100 in. But if you're going to put it into the Roth IRA, after taxes, you can only put $70 in. Well, that $70 is going to compound a lot at a slower rate than would the IRA, which has a $100 contribution in it. So that so over time that can make up like a big a big difference because you know the the compounding effect grows and grows and grows. But here's the other side of it: when you're at a lower income, your the marginal tax rate that you're assessed is also a lot lower. And while Roth contributions aren't are taxed when they're going in, they're not taxed when the money comes out as opposed to IRAs where the money goes in pre-tax, but it's taxed on when it comes out of the account. Flash forward to retirement. Now you have your Roth account and your IRA account. If your tax rate is a lot higher in retirement than when you made those contributions, it might've been better to uh, put that money in a Roth account when your tax rate was a lot lower. Uh, so what is the deal with um, high deductible insurance plans and like HSAs and FSAs? I have one and I use it, but I'm not sure everyone knows what those are. So do you have a FSA or an HSA? And I have an HSA. Okay. So you're, that means that you're on a high deductible plan. Here's, here's the kind of the cost benefit trade-off between the two. High deductible plans mean that you're going to be paying a lot more out of pocket for health costs. But to make it a little bit more fair, Congress passed legislation that allowed for health savings accounts or HSAs. And essentially what an HSA is, is sort of like a Roth IRA for health expenses. You can put pre-tax money 
into that money or into the HSA. And when it comes out, if you use it for health expenses, that money is not taxed. So by contributing to an HSA, you're essentially cutting down on what the tax bill will be, what your taxes will be at the end of the year. So it's a more tax efficient way to pay for health costs. Yeah. So you are saying that money that is left in the HSA or FSA at the end of the year is not counted toward your taxes. It's actually used as like sort of a deductible. Yeah. You can use your health costs without it, um, without it, or you can use it towards your health expenses and it won't be counted as taxable income. Okay. Got it. FSAs are different. Um, than HSAs. So in HSA, you have to have a high deductible plan to fund that, right? But for FSAs, you don't have to have a high deductible plan. So you can contribute mainly through your employer into what's called an FSA or a flexible spending account, which again is pre-tax and is that money when it comes out to pay health expenses is not taxed. But on the flip side, that money can't accumulate over time. So it's what's called a use it or lose it plan, meaning that if you have money left over in your FSA at the end of the year, either you can carry forward a smaller amount, like $500, or that money is gone. So what I would say if you have an FSA, the best way to approach it is to look at what your previous year's health spending was and to take a conservative guess at what you think you're going to spend this year. And that's a good way to approach, you know, like what you're going to contribute to your FSA this year. HSAs, on the other hand, have a little bit of an added benefit in that that money can accumulate over time. And you can use that money, if you don't use it all, in retirement to pay medical expenses while you're in retirement, which there's quite a bit once you get old and rickety. There's a lot for me now, so I can't wait till I get older. (laughs) Sure. And what I would say um, for people who are like kind of on the fence between, you know, a high deductible insurance plan and a non-high deductible plan is like like getting a piece of paper and writing out, you know, what they think their previous year's health costs were and looking at what the deductible on each of the plans and seeing which stacks up more. A lot of the times I think people get sucked up into the idea that I should be on the high deductible plan so I contribute to the FS, the HSA. But, you know, for me, for instance, uh, under a high deductible plan, my medication is so expensive that it makes more sense for me to be on the, the lower deductible plan. And that can be a lot easier for your cash flow planning throughout the year. So I I would say just like write it out, look at which one is going to take more from your pocket. You know, don't freak out about it too much. I think that there's something to be had for going with like the non high deductible plan and giving yourself a little bit of more stable cash flow as you are just like starting out. If you have questions about the IRAs and 401ks, uh, the next best thing is to potentially hire a financial planner or financial coach. What do you think, when is the right situation to hire those and how are they paid and what should you look for? I would say if you're just starting out, 
it all depends on what your your main goal for the process is. If you're struggling to figure out, you know, a savings plan or how to best manage your cash flow or what your goals are, or if you're having some mindset setbacks with money, hiring a financial coach can be invaluable. And what a financial coach does is takes you through the process of building those money habits that allow you to get closer to what your financial goals are and creating that financial management system that will add to that like success and help you really gain clarity around your money. So the a financial planner, as we previously mentioned, is more a strategy consultant. Again, as I said, the term planner is kind of a blanket term. So it's important to know before you hire a financial planner what exactly they do. A big difference, I would say, between types of financial planners are fee-only planners and fee-based planners. Fee-only planners who do not derive money from financial products will either charge what's based on AUM or assets under management, which is charging a fee based on the percentage of the investments that they manage or on a retainer basis. And so for me, because I'm working primarily with millennials who don't have, you know, 500K lying around in investment accounts, I charge a monthly retainer fee for them to work with me. There's on the other side, there's financial planners, a lot of them being at the bigger, you know, mutual companies that derive most of their money from financial products. So they sell things like annuities and life insurance in order to gain commissions that feed their revenue. There's nothing wrong with those advisors, but I would say just be careful by like getting second opinions or doing a little research yourself before you buy any financial products. I have a lot of good friends who are really ethical in that space, but I've, I'm kind of jaded in that. I've seen a lot of clients come in and really messed up situations and they were so clearly sold products that were not helping them at all. Or they had investments that had what are called 12B1 fees, which means that the advisor is paid for selling those investments and they were not in alignment with the client's goals. It's okay to work with fee-only or uh, fee-based advisors. Just be careful with the advice that they're giving you right off the bat. I would say like going to a doctor, make sure that they understand your situation before making any recommendations. If you walk into their office and they're immediately like, you need some whole life insurance and you're like, well, you don't even know what my last name is yet. That's a red flag. On the service side, financial planners will help you again with looking at some of the things that we've talked about, such as which type of health insurance makes more sense for you. What makes more sense, a Roth IRA or a traditional IRA, or on the employer side, a 401k or a Roth 401k, as well as helping you figure out an investment strategy that aligns with what your goals are and allocating those investments for you. Essentially, what I see the financial planner role being is like offshoring a lot of the research and grunt work that you might not want to do yourself. Oh, that's that's cool. I didn't know that that was some of the services they offered. I get a lot of my financial advice from Reddit. So 
<laughs> I love the personal finance Reddit. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's taught me a lot about things. <laughs> One thing I would say about the internet is like, be careful because I think that people like, be careful with like the advice that you're taking on the internet. Like sometimes people go to like extremes on either side. Like I see a lot of things that are like, only buy um, index funds. Mutual funds are the devil because they have higher expense ratios. And yes, mutual funds tend to have higher expense ratios than index funds, but that doesn't mean that all index funds are created equal. And it doesn't mean that all mutual funds are the devil. So if people are preaching extreme sides of anything on the internet, take it with a grain of salt. Yeah, I feel like that's just good life advice too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I would say like to all millennials out there because it the vast majority of us have debt in some form or the other. Don't freak out about it. Like don't buy into it too much. Like one exercise that I give a lot of my coaching clients is actually writing a thank you letter to their debt for what it's given them, whether it's the credit card debt or their student loans. And the reason for that is that a lot of times we get super attached to that debt and what it means about us. And we think, man, I'm so irresponsible because I have all of this debt. And that's just going to put you in a place where you're less likely to like look at the debt and look at it from like a, I'm thanking it for what it gave me. And now I'm thanking myself for creating a strategy for paying it off. So don't beat yourself up for having this debt, but like appreciate what it's given you and then put some appreciation towards your future self by starting to pay it off. Thanks for listening to the Shit You Need to Know podcast. I've set up a phone number in case you have a question you need answering or just want to talk. Feel free to give me a ring at 301-941-7448. That's 301-941-SHIT. Also, don't give me a ring. No one does that. You can text the number too. I don't know why I said ring. If you enjoyed this episode of the Shit You Need to Know podcast, feel free to subscribe on iTunes and rate it five stars.